you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. What a conversion. What a change. Well, in our passage today, we're going to discover another conversion that takes place. A conversion about a man by the name of Saul. Now, we've been introduced to him just briefly a few times in, in the, the book of Acts. He, he is, he's a, a gentleman that is there in Jerusalem as a leading scholar in the city over the Old Testament scriptures and law. He's a Pharisee, and he has become an, uh, an advocate for going after anybody who wants to deny Judaism and become a Christian. And it gets pretty strenuous. Well, we'll get into that. But as we discover here in chapter 9, <clears throat> we're going to help us answer a few basic questions. And the primary question is this, I think. How do I know if I'm really saved? How do I know that, that, that my faith has secured for me a place in heaven? I mean, how, how, do I, how can I guarantee that? How can I be sure? Saul, in our story, becomes saved. By faith. And so we're going to see how he came to know Jesus and how he trusted him as Lord and Savior. And this Saul, he eventually changes his name, which we hear about quite often in the New Testament, a name by the a man by the name of Paul. He eventually writes 12 of the books that we have in our New Testament as a leader in faith. You might say that. His security of his understanding of salvation, that he probably had no doubts that he was going to go to heaven, was because he was an apostle and he had some extra assurance. You might say that he was overconfident because of his background, or you might even say that he put up a brave front, but he did not really know if he was saved or not. But let's look at verses 1 through 19 this morning. And we'll see the conversion of Saul. And I think... By looking at that, we can begin to answer our own questions. How do I know if I'm saved? Verse 1. Now Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem and as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, well, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now the men who were traveling with him, get this, the men who were traveling with him, they, they stood speechless, hearing the voices, but seeing nothing, no one. Saul got up from the ground, and, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and there he was three days without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple, Damascus, named Ananias. And the Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus 
named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, and that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about from, from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up, was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So I think in looking at all this, the, the first thing that we know, how do I know if I'm saved? Well, first you have to know who you really are. I mean, who are you? And I want us to look and see what, what Saul was here in the beginning of this passage. He's a man that is breathing murderous threats against Christians here in verse 1. What kind of person would do that? I mean... Who was this man? You understand, breathing murderous threats. It's, it's as every breath he takes, his whole focus is on destroying people, even to death if possible, if they will not accept Judaism the way it's supposed to be and leave this Jesus out of it. Breathing murderous threats. Now, Saul was born into a good family. Don't, don't get me wrong here. He was born into a very interesting family, probably a prominent family up in Cilicia in the city of Tarsus is where he's from. And in, 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 in time of the Roman Empire, this city Tarsus, it competed with the city of Athens and the city of Alexandria as the educational learning center of the world. This is... This is where everybody would travel to if they couldn't get to Alexandria down in, in, on the African continent, or if they couldn't go up into Greece and get into Athens. They would come here to Tarsus, up in what is modern-day Turkey today, on the lower southern end of it by the sea, because it was a place of prominence in education. His family has the honor of somehow being Roman citizens. And, and that's no easy thing to get, to become a Roman citizen when you're not Greek, when you're not Roman. All right? It, being a Roman citizen was, was a very prestigious and a costly thing. You either had to buy your citizenship, which was, get this, half a lifetime's salary. Who wants to be a Roman citizen? Okay. All right. But that was one of the things. Or you could become a citizen because you brought forth great service to the empire of Rome. 
and your descendants then would receive that honor as well. So it, it gives you rank, it gives you influence, it gives you privilege, it gives you honor, it gives you prestige, it gives you power. And Saul is born into this kind of family. He happened to be born as Roman citizen, as it tells us there in Acts 22, verse 28, and, and he enjoyed his status his entire life. Matter of fact, he even used it to get out of some scrapes with the law on his missionary journeys, and we see that especially in Acts 22. He's also, as he put it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And Saul, not only is Roman, but he loves being Jewish. And he is studying Jewish culture, Jewish history, the Word of God. He is, he's allowing this beyond the normal fellows his age, his contemporaries and his countrymen. He is taking this to another level. He wants to be the scholar on Judaism. Listen to what he also says in Acts 23.6. He says, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. He's a man of power and position and influence. Now Saul has received the best training possible in his life at that day under a teacher by the name of Gamaliel. Now if you look a little history in the Jewish culture and the Jewish historians, they will talk about Gamaliel as one of the greatest Jewish teachers to ever grace this world. They actually gave him the name not Rabbi, but Rabban, which only very few people received that recognition. This was Saul's teacher, and a teacher chooses his pupils. So we've got him with this Jewish leader, Gamaliel, and he's learned under this man, and he was taught all about the law and about being zealous for God, and so he is very zealous. And it was Saul, this Roman citizen, this up-and-coming leader of the Jews, that when he faced with these new people called Christians, he started to persecute them because they were damaging and changing his faith. He put people in prison. He tore families apart. He killed. He observed as they were being killed. We know that he sanctioned the killing of Christians because in Acts chapter 7, which we've read, he gave approval of the stoning of Stephen. And he was the leader of the persecutions of the Christians. He had sought specifically that he might be the general in charge of the attack. He even traveled around looking for Christians to put in prison and to kill. So let's put Saul into some perspective for you and sum up who he was. Basically, if we boil down everything and we get to the core of what Saul was, we find that Saul was simply a sinner. He's no different than you or me. Except maybe some of the things that he was pushing and advocating for. But, but the reality is this. Saul's just a sinner. Matter of fact, he even classifies himself as the chief or the worst among men as sinners. But he's a sinner. So let's think for a moment. I don't know everything about all of you. 
I don't know exactly where you grew up. I don't know how many you have in your family. I don't know some places where you work. I, I don't know a lot of your history. I mean, there's bits and pieces I know about you, but there's one thing that I do know. You are just like Saul, and you are just like me. You're a sinner. What it all boils down to is we have that in common. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter where you're going. What it matters is we're all the same. We are all sinners. But listen to what it tells us in James chapter 4. or no, not, not James chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful, and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to say that we have done the opposite of what God warned us not to do. We have to be honest and say that we have thought things contrary to God's desires to enter into our minds. We have to be honest and say that we have hurt God and we have hurt other people and we have intentionally even hurt ourselves. So the first thing that we need to do is to be honest with ourselves. The second thing we need to do is this. We need to humble ourselves. Humility goes a long way with God. But it gets harder as you go along. I mean, it's easy to be honest with ourselves. And maybe to be honest with other people and to tell them the bad things that we've done, to admit that we're not perfect. But to change the core of who I am and become humble, my pride gets in the way. My equality, my rights, my privileges, they somehow step on the heart of humility in ways that I, I don't, think I could be prepared for. The book of James tells us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So when I look at this, we cannot be prideful when it comes to God. We, we can't. We've, we've got to humble ourselves before Him. We, James uses this word humble here to let us know that we have to be the lowest of the low in our spirits about sin, about sorrow. We've got to be contrite in heart, the Scripture says. Third step, I think, is this. We need to decide to submit ourselves to God. Especially when it comes to the sin issue and the sin in our lives. We, we, we've got to submit to Him because there's no way that we can battle it on our own. We, we can't overcome. So you have to choose to follow God and not the world. But this world has so many neat things to offer, you know? And when everybody else seems to be enjoying themselves doing those things, wouldn't it be great just to go right along with them and enjoy it? I mean, what's wrong with a bit of... Pleasure and happiness. It's not that God doesn't give us pleasure and happiness. It's the world's definition of pleasure and happiness 
that needs to be redefined. And they don't understand it sometimes when we don't jump into that. We've been talking about on Wednesday nights, the flood of dissipation with them. They don't get it. Why don't you want to sin with us? Why don't you want to do these things? You know, nobody's going to, it's not going to hurt anybody. But God says, no. Be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as I am perfect. Let me give you a joy that surpasses all things that you, you've never experienced before. So James encourages us here in, in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, the biggest part of, of admitting that you're a sinner is to say no to evil and say yes to God. And I find that in my own personal walk. It, it, it's too easy to say yes to things that we should not do. But that's what repenting is. That's what confessing Jesus as our Savior is. When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we're saying no to the devil. We are resisting him and causing him to flee from us. And we're submitting ourselves to the authority of God and his chosen lifestyle for us. In the cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes, I mean, Calvin and Hobbes, they're, they're great. They, they go through life like you and I do. And, 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 and some of the things that go on are, are interesting. In one of these cartoon images, we, we see this story. And, and, and Calvin, he says, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings, and I'm sorry I did it. And Hobbes, this tiger friend, he, he, he says, maybe you should apologize to her and tell her you did wrong. And I imagine Calvin probably thinks that and ponders that a little while and finally goes, uh, I keep hoping that there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you mean I, I got to apologize? I mean, I just can't feel sorry. I've got to do something about it. Isn't that how we are? When we come to the realization that we have done something wrong in our life, no matter how great or small or insignificant or significant it might be, when we realize I missed the mark. Oh, I'm sorry. I wish I could have done that. And that's all we do. It doesn't affect a change in anything else. Repentance is to, to take and to do something the total opposite of what we just did. And, and so Abs is suggesting, okay, you're sorry. That's great. Well, maybe you need to go and do something opposite of what you just did. Maybe it'll work itself out in the end. But that's not what happens. Would we want to restore our relationship with God? We need to remember that God, He has a liking for the obvious solution. Repent. Now, looking at this passage of Scripture, verses 3 through 16, I think that we see the second major lesson in here is that you need to let to learn to let Jesus do the work. It's not our work salvation, it's his works for our salvation. 
See, here was Saul. He, he's trotting down the road to Damascus, excited that he's going to go and drag people out of their homes and out of their workplaces and put them in prison and, and, and take them to court and, if possible, destroy these, these blasphemers, these heretics of Judaism to eradicate this, this wart on society of faith because he is zealous about it. And on his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, when a miracle happens, he has this experience. Suddenly, all around him, this, this light flashes, and, and, and it causes him to fall to the ground. And those who are with him, everybody just, they can't handle the brilliance of this light. It's reminiscent of what took place there on the mountain when God spoke to Moses and the, the people were so afraid when they heard the rumblings and the voice of God and, and the brilliance of His glory that they told Moses, don't let us go up on that mountain again. You'll see if God can let us stay down here. They're afraid of who He is. And so we've got this glory of God shining forth and it throws these fellows all to the ground in, 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 in an amazing way. And apparently, a voice then speaks from the brilliance. And it was Jesus. He was the only one that was having this whole experience because his traveling companions, they heard the voice. But they, they, they didn't see anything. But Saul does. He sees Jesus in the brilliance of this light, and he hears his voice. What are you doing, Saul? You're persecuting me. Well, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. I'm the one that you've been persecuting. You can imagine. You're talking about being stopped dead in your tracks. Saul was confronted. You see, Jesus is working in the life of Saul. Matter of fact, he's been working before this moment in the life of Saul in order that he might bring salvation to Saul. See, first off, Jesus had worked before he, he had this encounter with Saul and before Saul even began persecuting the church because he went around teaching and preaching and healing and baptizing. And, and his ultimate work, though, was dying on the cross. And Jesus paid the price for Saul's sin. And I guarantee you that Saul was one of the Pharisees that had gathered in Jerusalem, was probably in that room with Caiaphas when they were condemning him to the cross. We don't get his name in that. All we really know is Caiaphas is there, but he's gathered with a bunch of Pharisees. And if Saul has told us he is a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees, you know that he would have been right there in the midst of it. He's heard about Jesus. He's probably even encountered him on the way and has tossed out questions trying to trap him up. And now we've got him. Jesus has been working, preparing for this moment. And Jesus paid the price for Saul's sin as he died on the cross. But he paid the price for your sin and for my sins as well. And he, he, he died on the cross for each and every one of us so that we can have an opportunity for a personal relationship with him. Can you imagine a personal relationship with the creator of this universe? Once to invite you over for dinner when you die. 
But even before that, he wants to have such a personal relationship with you that he indwells you with his spirit and his presence to give you guidance and direction and counsel and comfort and peace and healing, understanding. He can't get more personal than living within you. See, Jesus had worked in Saul's life even before the Damascus Road. But he's still working in Saul's life at this point. He tells him to get up, go to Damascus, and to wait there. Meanwhile, Jesus speaks to a believer named Ananias, who would come and minister to Saul there on Straight Street at the house of Judas. And he didn't want to go. Because he'd heard about Saul and his murderous lifestyle of going around dragging people out. And he knew that he'd already been given permission by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to come up to Damascus and to, to take care of the Christians that are up here. And Ananias is like, ah, I don't want to confront him. I don't want to be in the same house with him, let alone in the same... I don't even want to have a conversation with him. And God says, hey, don't worry about it. Hey, I've already taken care of that. I've been, I've been dealing with him. Matter of fact, I've given him a dream and a vision that you're going to come and talk to him and he's going to receive his sight again. And I've shown him what he's going to do in his life and how he's going to face the sufferings for me and for my name. And, and he's going to speak before kings and rulers and authorities. And he's going to take this message not only to the Jews and to the Gentiles. I've talked with him about this. Ananias, don't worry. I got you covered. Go. So Jesus worked in Saul's life in just two ways. First, it was his ministry here on earth while he was sacrificing for, for Saul on the cross. And really, without that, we have no way for salvation. No cross, no death, no life. And the second was bringing people into Saul's life to minister to him and to explain the gospel. And you realize the same thing happens to us. Jesus has been working prior to you being here today by all the things that he did in his, in his life on this earth, by his teaching, his preaching, his healings, his miracles, and his death on the cross. He, he put in a lot of work to get you to this point today where you'd be here. And he's working even in your life today trying to direct and, and tell you what you should do to go. You read the scriptures and you know what you should do. He brings people into our lives that share about Jesus. Maybe they're a family member or a co-worker or a neighbor or maybe even a preacher. But somehow you have found out about Jesus. And you're convinced of the truth. You've placed your faith in Him. Or hopefully you will. But see, all that's Jesus working. But as we close out the rest of this passage in verse 17 through 19, we find that a thing that we need to do is you must obey. You've got to obey. Jesus told his disciples many things. And he spent time, three and a half years there, and even after his death, he spent time reminding them and teaching them. He wants us to understand things. He told them, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. 
Anyone who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And John writes that down for us in the Gospel of John. He tells us these are things that Jesus said. And he also tells us that on that same occasion, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other way to heaven except by putting your faith in Jesus. Don't let the world deceive you. Muslims aren't going to heaven. Though they say they have the Allah, which is the same God of the Old Testament, it's not. Because their God is not manifested in Jesus. A lot of other things out there people are trying to tell us, you know, you, 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 you look in your inner self and you do these things and you'll, you'll get to heaven. No, you don't. The only way to heaven is through Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is alive. And Jesus is trying to say that in these verses that, that, that there are countless other ones like them in the New Testament. That, that I'll put it simply. If you love Jesus and you add Him as your Lord and Savior, you're going to follow and obey Him and His commands. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not heavy. They're not hard. Well, we make them hard. But when you commit your life to Jesus by putting faith in Him, a transformation takes place inside of you. You become this new creation. I mean, that's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So what does Saul do in this moment? Here he is sitting in the dark because he's blinded from this experience on Damascus Road that, that he has no way of being able to see at this point. And, and, and for three days. And so he doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He just sits there in this house where he has been led to. And he's praying continually that God would do something. He was staying in the house of a Christian whom he had come to destroy. For three days, he waits. And finally, God's servant Ananias comes to him. And he prays over him. And Saul is healed. And I want you to look at what did he do here in, in verse 17, 18, 19? What, what's, what's he do when, he, when finally his eyes are opened and he sees? Immediately... He gets baptized, washing away his sins. And the rest of the book of Acts, and more than half of the books of the New Testament, are proof that he sought after God with all his heart, and he obeyed God to the very end. So how do you know if you're saved? That's really the question that we started with. We've looked at this conversion of the Apostle Paul to help maybe answer that. And I look at Paul, and I see someone who's just like you and just like me, and, and he's a sinner, and he found himself powerless to change his standing with God. He was blinded. He needed help. Romans 5, verse 6 tells us this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While you were still helpless, 
Jesus said the thing for him to do was to die in your helplessness. So he would be able to empower you to live a full life. Paul writes and he says, you know, now I, I know just part of things. But then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. See, we get but a glimpse of what life really is in this world. And this world, in its brevity, it's short. Frida turns 92 tomorrow. But 92 years is but a dust mite on the timeline of eternity. It's nothing. But what we do in these brief moments in this life are going to impact us for all eternity. Putting our faith in Jesus and what He has done for us <clears throat> creates something great. See, Saul needed Jesus even though he was fighting him, even though he was persecuting him by killing his church. But Saul comes to Jesus in humbleness now. He confessed his sins and he accepted Jesus for who he is and what he did. And he obeyed him and was baptized. And he continued to live his life out and remain faithful to him the rest of the days of his life until he is himself put to death for believing in Jesus. So how do you know you're saved? I mean, there's a certain way that you can stand before God. Maybe we can face these three questions in this life. The first one is this. Have you confessed Jesus to be Lord of your life? Have you asked Him to forgive you? You need to know who you are. To know that you're a sinner. And to know that He is holy and righteous and forgiving and gracious. The second question we might ask is this. Have we, been, have we repented and have we been baptized? I mean, that's, a, that's a calling that He gives each and every one of us. And matter of fact, that's, that's a command that we have been commissioned to go in and to, to teach the world about Jesus, to obey His commands, and to baptize them. If you've not been baptized, why not? It's a simple process. And we can take care of it today. You don't have to put it off to your deathbed. Because living a life filled with His Spirit, oh my goodness, what you might be missing out on. The third question is this. Have you remained faithful? That's a question I've got to ask myself. I, I repented. I, I put my faith in Him. I was baptized. But have I continued to be faithful to Him throughout my life? And will I be faithful from this day forward? Because that's just as commanding as the other things. I can't ignore His commands. I've got to be obedient and I've got to be faithful to them.
you do as well. H.G. Wells, a famous publicist, he writes in the issues of a thing called Pearson's. He says, the world is now a very tragic and anxious world. And the desire for a peace of mind and a courage such as only deep and pure convictions can supply has never been so pure and so widespread. More people are asking today, and they're asking with new intensity, what must I do to be saved? The trouble with the Christian churches is that they give a confused, unconvincing, and unsatisfying answer. Do you hear what he says? There are more people today who are asking, what, what do I need to be saved? But the church is not giving them the real answer. There's kind of confusion within the church. It's really not convincing them. And, and I'm seeing that especially here in America. The church needs to have the answer. And people are balking at what we're telling them because we ourselves may not feel convinced enough. So whatever criticisms you might, you might toss at Mr. Welv and his indictment of the church, I, I think that, that we need to admit a confused, unconvincing, unsatisfying answer is being given in many places to those people who have these personal questions. What must I do to be saved? But however much the Christian churches may be charged with just the... The lack of confidence because we don't have experience or knowledge of what God is doing. We need to understand that this book, this, this Bible, it is God's Word. It is fully inspired by Him and His Spirit that the authors who penned them, His Spirit moved them to write the things that, that are written in there. And matter of fact, Paul tells us that it is a, it's a fully inspired Word of God. And it's useful for us for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped to do good works. If it is true, as Mr. Wells says, that more people are asking today and asking with new intensity, what must I do to be saved? I think it's due them to hear the original answer to that question. And it's found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I pray you find that saving relationship with Him. Because He offers it freely. It's not going to cost you anything. But it cost Him dearly. We're going to have our invitation.
the Bible contains for us the story of Jesus. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection. And even gives us a glimpse into what He's doing right now in heaven. And if you believe in that story, follow. Let's stand together.